Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This roller coaster ride of espionage and intrigue is like a maze where secrets are hidden, loyalties are deceitful, and nothing is quite what it seems. But this 80s flick isn't just your run-of-the-mill thriller, it's a mind-bending carnival ride of suspense. A Navy officer's clandestine affair takes a treacherous turn when he becomes a pawn in a high-stakes conspiracy within the Pentagon. As the plot thickens, he finds himself in a race against time, desperately untangling a complex web of lies while facing the imminent threat of exposure and danger. With unexpected twists, the movie kept audiences on the edge of their seats, guessing who was playing who until the grand finale. So travel with us to our nation's capital, check your security clearance, and be sure to throw away any undeveloped Polaroid negatives as J.B. Huffman and I discuss No Way Out from 1987 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. They needed a hero. I understand he has a background in intelligence. There's two tours with naval intelligence. Get him here. He liked excitement. Take us somewhere. He wanted her. Their passion upset the balance of power. What's all this top secret business I've been hearing about it with the Pentagon? You know I work for Bryce? Then that makes two of us. This one can do things for me like no other woman I've ever met. Behind the cover-up. Try and understand. The power. The important thing is to abort an investigation before it ever gets to you. You haven't told me everything. Who's running this thing at the Pentagon? The new boy, Farrell. So we can take the fall in case anything goes wrong. The loyalty. I love you. I promise I'll work everything out. How did you actually meet the Secretary of Defense? I need a car. It's an emergency. These people have already tried to kill one person who knew. Bring this hey, one down. No, 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 you can't take that. Behind the deceit. If it were your intention to bring down David Bryce, then I'd have no choice but to make sure that you didn't get away with it. They mean to kill me, Sam. Because of the truth, there's no way out. Kevin Costner. Gene Hackman. Sean Young. Will Patton. No way out. I'm Tim Williams, the mastermind behind the mic at the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Joining me on each epic episode is a guest co-host 
who's as crazy about 80s flicks as they are about wearing parachute pants and solving Rubik's Cubes. We're diving into nostalgic treasures we saw at the local theater, rented on VHS tapes, or discovered on cable TV. From blockbusters that make you say, I feel the need, the need for speed. To hidden gems that'll have you screaming, They're here. It's a blast to relive these old memories and share our thoughts on what made these movies so special. We reminisce about our first time watch experiences, share our favorite scenes, and even discover fascinating behind the scenes tales about the cast and crew along the way. Haven't hit that subscribe button yet? What are you waiting for? Come on, do it! On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And hey, while you're at it, be a pal and drop us a written review along with a five-star rating to tell us what you think about us. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Take a day off and come hang out with us on social media. Just search 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And don't forget to bookmark 80sflickflashback.com for more gnarly content. Get out of town. I didn't know you did anything creative. Want to crank it all the way up to 11? Become a supporter on buymeacoffee.com for only $5 a month. Do or do not. There is no try. Click the link in our episode show notes, and while you're there, soak up the extra trivia and fun stuff that didn't make it into today's show. Thanks again for tuning in. Now, let's get right into today's episode. Welcome to the party, pal! Welcome in, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Always a delight to have you here with us and excited about this episode. One of my favorite movies. Uh, I've loved this movie for a long time, so I'm glad to have J.B. Huffman from Manly Movies back with me to discuss... A movie that is twisty and turny, good thriller. What do you think? Yeah, man, I I really enjoyed it. I, um, I'll be honest, it was my first time watching it. <laughs> oh, I had a feeling I would, I, when I sent you the list and you were like, I want to do that one. I was like, I wonder if you've seen if he's actually seen this one before. So, all right, yeah. well, cool. We'll, we'll we'll jump right in. So this was your first time watching it. So what were what were your initial thoughts? Well. I- I, I chose the movie because I'm a lifelong Kevin Costner fan. Yeah. Oh yeah I, yeah. I grew up field of dreams was like one of the first <laughs> movies that I really loved as a kid. Right. And um, my wife is a big uh, Kevin Costner fan and she's also a big uh, Will Patton fan. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, as soon as I tell my wife about this, she's going to want to watch it. So I figured it'd be <laughs> something I could watch with her. Yeah. Plus, you know, I'm a manly movies guy. This is a political thriller starting yeah. at, uh, with the military aspect and everything. Mm-hmm. So this has got to be right up my alley. And dude, it absolutely was. I mean, I love the <laughs> the film noir feel that it had. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and just exposing all these, you know, secrets and cover ups and mm-hmm. uh, just so good. We we can talk about more of it later on. But yeah, my my <laughs> initial reaction was it was very good. All right, cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. No, it'd have been very awkward <laughs> if you had. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I I did not see this one in the theater. I th- actually I think I this came on TV, and I think I recorded it on TV, uh, and watched it a couple of times. But once again, like you, I was a Kevin Costner fan as a kid because this came out yeah '87, so he had already done. Field of Dreams wasn't done yet. I think Bull Durham, but I hadn't seen that one yet. 
there was something else that he had been in before this came out that caught my attention, which is why I wanted to see it. But they they say this is one of the uh, breakout roles for him. This was the same year Untouchables came out. Maybe that's what it is, because I remember seeing Untouchables. I remember seeing the Untouchables pretty soon after it came out. So uh, this probably this maybe came on TV like an, a year or two later, and that's probably when I recorded it and watched it. Silverado might have been. Yeah, that came out earlier. Yeah, I yeah. I remember, yeah, yeah. I saw Silverado, but I think I saw that later. And okay. Fandango, he did, was kind of a lesser known. I remember seeing that on cable, I think. Even, you know, the TV version was still, you know, had all the the story and the, the suspense and the twists and turns and stuff. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. And then, of course, being an Army brat, anything that's military at D.C., always kind of, you know, I've always gravitated towards those type of stories. But I like a good... This isn't really a whodunit because you know, but yeah. the kind of the backwards part of you know who it is and the guy, you know, the great part of the story is the guy who did it is the one in charge of finding out who did it. So it's mm-hmm. how he's trying to cover his tracks and expose the one, you know, or I guess he wasn't the one that did it, but he knows who did it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. The questions don't apply because you just watched it for the first time. So we'll move on to story origin and pre-production. I'll say this at the outset. There was not a whole lot of information about how this movie was made. So I don't really have much about that. Uh, what I what I can tell you is this is the second American film adaptation of the novel, The Big Clock, which was written by Kenneth Fearing in 1946. So there was a film version of The Big Clock that came out, I think, in 48, if I remember correctly. I didn't write it down. Um, but I did pull up the book synopsis because I wanted to see how, because obviously it wasn't a political thriller in the 40s. So I'm going to read the synopsis. You'll see some of the key things that they definitely kept in the story, even though they changed a lot of other stuff. So this is the synopsis of The Big Clock. The novel's innovative structure is presented from the point of view of seven different characters. Each of the 19 chapters adopts the perspective of a single character. The first five chapters are told by George Stroud, who works for a New York magazine publisher. Stroud, who's the main character in the book, is a borderline alcoholic and serial adulterer. His latest affair is with Pauline, who is the girlfriend of his boss, Earl Janeth. After a weekend together in upstate New York, George and Pauline spend a leisurely evening in Manhattan, eating dinner, bar hopping, and browsing antique stores. Later, George leaves Pauline at a corner near her Manhattan apartment. He watches her approach the entrance and sees Earl, his boss, emerge from a limousine and enter the build, building with her. Earl sees George observing him, not but, crit, but crucially, he cannot make him out in the shadows. So we can see how that, that scene is very much from the book. In Pauline's apartment, she and Earl have a violent argument in which he accuses her of being a cheat and a lesbian. And I'm like, wow, in 1946, that was a plot line? <laughs> Uh, during the Hayes Code, right? Era, like right. crazy. In reply, she suggests that he and his close associate Steve Hagen are a gay couple. This enrages Earl, and he bludgeons her to death with a crystal decanter. In a panic, he goes to Steve's apartment for assistance. Steve immediately begins planning a cover-up and tells Earl he must be prepared to have the man who witnessed him enter the building killed. Earl reluctantly agrees. Earl and Steve employ all the resources of the publishing firm to find the mysterious witness, not realizing that he is right under their noses. They put George in charge of the investigation as he is their sharpest editor. George sets the investigation in motion, but craftily subverts its chance for success. 
Despite the roadblocks George puts in the way of the investigation and identifying him as the witness, he comes closer and closer to being found. I love this part. Eventually, witnesses are brought to the publishing house's building because it is said that the sought-after individual, whose name is still unknown, is inside the building. The building is searched floor by floor, and it appears inevitable that Stroud will be caught, but Earl snaps under the pressure and surrenders his company to an unfavorable merger. His leaving the company suddenly makes the manhunt moot and is quickly terminated without the witnesses seeing George. So a lot of similarities, like more than I thought there would be from the book that made it into the movie, even the searching the building floor by floor, which is such a great scene in the movie oh, uh, towards the end. So it's pretty cool. I really love any movies that I've seen from the forties. Most of them anyway. And mm-hmm. so when I saw that, I was like, man, like I really need to watch that. So I looked it up and I was like, <laughs> Oh, I already had it on my watch list. Um, <laughs> but I started looking. It's got uh, Maureen O'Sullivan, mm-hmm. um, Charles Loughton, and uh, Ray Milan. I mean, you know, three pretty big names for the 40s. Like, right. So I was right. like, man, I got I got to hit this up at some point. So I think it'll be pretty. <laughs> and I'm kind of anxious to see how they spin that plot. Um, right. Because in the 40s, you, you, can, yeah. you, you can you can write a book like that. But mm-hmm. you couldn't show a movie like that, so I'm kind of right, exactly to see how they did the, the did the plot on there. So exactly, yeah, yeah. I was really that's why I was like, I gotta I gotta share this on the podcast because I can't. I just I wouldn't have thought of that being a plot, you know, plot points in a major novel in the 40s. But there it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the director, I'll talk a little bit about the director Roger Donaldson because he wasn't a name that I immediately recognized. But then as I was looking at what he had done, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen a lot of his movies. So. Uh, He is an Australian-born New Zealand film director, producer, and writer. His international break came when producer Dina De Laurentiis invited him to direct the adaptation of Mutiny on the Bounty after Lawrence of Arabia director David Lean left the project. The film, which was released as The Bounty, starred Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson. Donaldson was nominated for a Golden Palm at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival for the film. So I've, I've not seen the movie The Bounty, but I know... I've seen the trailers for it. So it's like, that was actually on my, my watch list. And I think I started it at one point, but I didn't, it's like a, it's pretty long. I didn't have time to finish it. And so I never got back to it. Uh, but he went on to direct many popular and successful films. His breakthrough American hit was this movie, no way out. He then made cocktail starring Brian Brown and Tom Cruise. It was panned by the critics, but did very well at the box office. The volcano disaster movie Dante's Peak, starring Pierce Brosnan and Linda Hamilton, helped restore Donaldson's status after a string of less successful films. He also made 13 Days, a political thriller, once again starring Kevin Costner, adapted from the Kennedy tapes, which was a detailed account of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He also directed the science fiction movie Species, and in 2003, the Al Pacino and Colin Farrell film The Recruit. So he's he's done like, you know, thriller seems to be his kind of bread and butter, it seems. So he knows how to make those type of movies. Have you seen any of those? I've seen the recruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen the bank job with, uh, Jay- oh, Jay- yeah. Jason Jason Statham. Statham. yeah. Yeah. That um, was on his filmography too. Yeah. Never seen species or cocktail. I've, I've, I've wanted to, but yeah. Oh, and actually I've seen Dante's peak as well. I, yeah. I, remember, I actually watched that one in theaters when I was younger. So, Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess 12. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen cocktails several, several times. Uh, I don't, I think I've seen Dante's peak. 
I've seen 13 days. Uh, I saw species and yeah, I've seen the recruit. So yeah, I've, but like there's others in his filmography, like you, know, you mentioned. So I've seen a lot of those. It's interesting. The screenplay for this movie was originally titled finished with engines where they got that title from. I do not know, <laughs> but Donald Donaldson thought it was an original script all the way through production. He said, I was at a party and ran into Mel Gibson. And he said, Oh, I heard you made the remake of the big clock. He was like, he didn't even realize that that's, it was a remake of the old movie. Uh -huh. But he said, everyone told Donaldson, you have to have a better title than finished with engines or it'll never go anywhere. And that's very true. No way out was a much better, better title. I will say a lot. Some of the notes that I have come from the, some, I, I didn't have a copy with the commentary, but the, I found a site, which will be in the show notes where somebody you know wrote down different things that they learned from the commentary. So that's where a lot of this is going to be directly from Donaldson because the commentary was just with him about making the movie. And they said even the commentary, I think, was made in like 2015. So they said even you know 20 some years later, he didn't talk a lot during the commentary, but he still had a pretty good memory of certain things. So I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I did read that uh Sean Young had said in interviews that Donaldson made her lift up her shirt and yeah, show her. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> During the audition. I was like, okay. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't go over, wouldn't go over too well these days, but you know, not in he, the was an, era. he was an international director. That's, I mean, probably a little bit more common in other, other countries than it was here, but she didn't turn it down though. Not, <laughs> she, yeah. She, she still made the movie. She was still in it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> And now, these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
All right, well, let's jump into casting. We'll talk. I think I've got another story about her audition uh, coming up as well. So, uh, so of course, it stars Kevin Costner as Lieutenant Commander Tom Farrell. Um, I won't go over his history and career because we've covered in our previous episodes, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, and even The Untouchables. So this is not my first Kevin Costner film, but as a fan of his, um, that's probably why. But Donaldson has said that Costner reminded him of Steve McQueen and his understated ability to play the everyman. He said, Kevin does a lot with very little. And that's very true. Like Kevin Costner, is, that's been his bread and butter is playing that everyman type of character that he doesn't have to talk a lot. It He, he emotes a lot through his body language and his expressions without being over the top. You know, it, it just seems very down to earth. Uh, most of the characters he plays, he's played some wild characters. Like his his uh, character in uh, Bull Durham is probably one of the most outrageous. And Silverado, he's playing more an outrageous character. But most of the ones that he's most known for are like The Untouchables, Field of Dreams, the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like that. It seems like there's always an actor in every generation that that that's his stick is like mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm the every like jimmy stewart is one that yeah, comes to oh, my yeah, mind. yeah. and gary cooper kind of yeah. kind of the same era mm-hmm. um but i think nowadays you could look at somebody like maybe a matt damon who's kind of like yeah. that as well yeah um, i would say tom hanks especially in the oh, 90s definitely tom hanks for yeah, sure that's like i would say like i would i think kevin costner and tom hanks are kind of interchangeable in some ways as far as like the everyman roles that they've done where they've done really well with that uh, those roles, but yeah, Matt Damon, you know, kind of next generation. Cause of course he's younger than them. I'm trying to think of anybody else, like in the young, in the current generation that I would put in that, you know what? I think Chris Pratt could be, but he mm-hmm. likes to be funny so much that <laughs> yeah. he just, but I think if he, I think as he gets older, I think he'll just like Tom Hanks was a comedy actor when he started. I think as Chris Pratt matures, and gets more mature roles where he's aging. I think he'll, I think he'll be more that every man character. I can definitely see that for sure. I'm marking some of these as rumors because I, I just can't believe that all these people were considered for the role, but I'll read a couple of names. Mel Gibson makes sense. Harrison Ford, Alec Baldwin, Michael Keaton, Kurt Russell, Patrick Swayze, Dennis Quaid, Bruce Willis, Richard Gere, Michael Bean, William Hurt, Tommy Lee Jones, Jeff Bridges, Robin Williams, Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, and Christopher Lambert were all considered to play Tom Farrell. That's just a lot of people. <laughs> Mel Gibson and Patrick Swayze do not surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Swayze was like the the guy in the, yeah. In the oh, 80s, yeah, yeah. So it's like he's he's somebody that they would have definitely called for that role especially yeah. with it being a uh erotic thriller i mean mm-hmm. every every woman in the 80s wanted to see uh patrick swayze <laughs> right <laughs> something right. like that you know right yeah it's like i could see gibson yeah i'm thinking i had to remember 87 so this is around the same time as lethal weapon um mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin really wasn't on the scene as of yet. He really didn't hit until the nineties. Um, Dennis Quaid would probably be, he probably could have been that, that role. He's yeah. Yeah. That's probably it. You know, Tom Cruise a little bit later, maybe he could have done that. 
But yeah, I think some of the stuff that I find on IMDb, I think the people just let me think of all the actors that were that were popular and just put it in here, see how many people believe it. So I, I can't I can't say I'm, I'm I'm prefacing it now by saying this is a rumor. I have nothing to back it up besides IMDb. We know that that's not always the most accurate place to find your information. So right. that's my disclaimer. Thank you for listening. All right. So then we got Gene Hackman, uh, who was one of my all time favorite actors playing the secretary of defense, David Bryce. I mean, Gene Hackman is acting legend. I'm actually kind of kicking myself. This is the first movie I've covered with him in it because the eighties was a good decade for him as well. Uh, but he's had a career that spanned more than six decades. He received two Academy awards, two BAFTA awards, four Golden Globes, a Screen Actors Guild Award, and the Silver Bear. His two Academy Award wins, including one for Best Actor for his role, role as Jimmy Popeye Doyle in William Friedkin's acclaimed thriller The French Connection in 1971, and the other for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Little Big, sorry, Little Bill Daggett in Clint Eastwood's Western film Unforgiven from 1992. Uh, his other Oscar-nominated roles were in Bonnie and Clyde in 67, I Never Sang for My Father in 1970 and Mississippi Burning in 1988. Another great movie. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I covered uh, Unforgiven. Unforgiven. That's probably, that is my most popular episode. And that performance in that movie, mm -hmm. hands down, best Gene Hackman performance ever. Um, yeah. The one that wasn't mentioned that actually came out the year before this was Hoosiers. And yes. That's, yeah, that's what I will always remember him for. Yeah, yeah, I've got more of his filmography in the next little section. But speaking of Unforgiven, I think I remember watching Unforgiven. I need to go back and watch it again because I watched it when I was like shortly after it came out, and it's like I liked it, but it you know I was a big Tombstone person, so it didn't have that same action. You know, it's a much more slower paced, you know, traditional western. But there's one line in that movie that I still think about to this day, and it's Gene Hackman's line when he said, "What he's like something like, uh, looks like you shaved. What happened to your beard? He said, I got tired of, of tasting soup two days later. or something. It's something to that effect. I don't <laughs> know if you know the line. You, you may know the line better than me, but having a beard, as both of you and I do, it's like whenever I'm eating soup, that line pops in my head. I'm like, that's true. I, so I'm going to taste this later. I know I am. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, so great, great. Line. I need that's I need great. to go back and watch that one. That's that that's that's one that needs to be rewatched because I haven't seen it in a long time. It's a good one, man. I mean, it's a it's an Oscar winner for a reason, right? <laughs> right, definitely. Uh, mm -hmm. So many good nuggets in that movie, man. Yeah. So, uh, but he gained further fame for his portrayal as Lex Luthor in Superman in '78 and its sequel, Superman II in 1980. And Superman Four: The Quest for Peace in '87. He also acted in The Poseidon Adventure in '72, The Conversation in '74, Reds in '81, Hoosiers in '86, Get Shorty in '95, Crimson Tide in '95. One of my all-time favorites, The Birdcage in '96, Absolute Power '97, and another favorite, Enemy of the State in 1998. Mm. But his filmography is is ridiculous. Like he's done so many great movies. What was the uh... Uh, the replacements. Yes, that's right. one of my guilty pleasure. <laughs> oh man, I love that. So I just much. I just watched it a couple of weeks ago because I, I have to watch it every year. That, I mean, it's ludicrous and it it's makes no sense. But I think because it's Gene Hackman as the coach, it uh -huh. just adds like like you have to watch it. I know it's it's not a great movie, 
but Keanu Reeves and Gene Hackman in the movies, like you, you have to watch it, you know. Uh, but it's that movie's so funny. It's still funny. It is, yeah, for sure. It would have come out what ninety nine or two thousand, something like that. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, I mean, if Gene Hackman is playing a coach, you've got to watch it because I mean, he's <laughs> the the legendary coach from Hoosiers. You have to watch. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. He's like yeah. so. He's wary, wiry. He's wiry. <laughs> Say it, wiry, wiry. What? Yep. Oh my uh, goodness! All right, so another rumor. So here are the other actors that were rumored to be considered to play the role of David Bryce: Tommy Lee Jones, I could see; mm-hmm. John Voight, Donald Sutherland, oh, yeah. Dustin Hoffman, James Caan, Robert Duvall, James Cromwell, Donald Moffat, Sean Connery, and Jason Robards. Robert Duvall probably eighty-seven. Cromwell, Donald Moffat, maybe. Sean Connery would have been interesting. Um, the one that strikes me in that is uh, John Voight. Like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I could see him playing mm-hmm. that kind of a character because he plays a like butthole in a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. But I think at that point in his career, I don't think he would have been involved in any kind of sex scandal. Like, True. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. He, I, his humble beginnings. I mean, he was a a, a male a hooker in the movie of Midnight Cowboy. But right, right. Um, I think in '87, I, I think he. I don't think he would have ever even considered that role. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about Voight. We we did Runaway Train last year, so mm-hmm. good old John Voight movie. Voight. Yeah, but who was uh, uh Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah, I could definitely see that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting you bring up Tommy Lee Jones. So Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman were later considered for the lead roles in The Fugitive in 1993, but the roles mm. went to Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones instead. I could see that. That would have been a cool reteaming of them in The Fugitive. I mean, I love The Fugitive. Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones are fantastic, but I just mm-hmm. think that that's an interesting, you know, alternate universe movie. Mm. All right, and then next on the list, we got Sean Young as Susan Atwell. Young's early roles included the independent romance Jane Austen in Manhattan in 1980 and the comedy Stripes in 1981 with Bill Murray. Of course, Stripes being a commercial success, but her breakthrough role was that of Rachel in the sci-fi Blade Runner in 1982. Mm-hmm. She then portrayed the character of Shani in the sci-fi movie Dune in 84. She also was in Wall Street in 87 and had starring roles in the comedies Fatal Instinct in 93 and Ace Ventura Pet Detective 1994. Lieutenant Einhorn. Yeah, Einhorn is a man? Finkel is Einhorn, yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, if I ever did a was, '90s podcast, that's that's on that's that's high on the list of ones I'd have to cover. I was thinking when I when we were watching that movie, I was like, "What is this woman from?" I, I, <laughs> and, and I knew I've seen some of the other movies that she was in, like mm-hmm. Blade Runner and stuff like that. But I was yeah. like, "There's something newer that I've seen her in," mm-hmm. and it was. And finally, it dawned on me. I didn't have to look it up. I'm, 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 I'm always proud when I don't have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, that's Lieutenant Einhorn from mm-hmm. Ace Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah, I tend to – I get her and Deborah Winger mixed up a lot. And I think that was a thing even, even during that time in Hollywood. Like, they were two actresses that tend to do the same type of movies and had a similar look. When I put the movie on the other day, I was like, okay – is this Sean Young or is this Deborah Winger? I couldn't remember who, which actress it was. And then when she popped up, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't remember her. Uh, so the rumor on this one was Michelle Pfeiffer turned down the role of Susan Atwell. And Priscilla Presley auditioned hard 
or you know, she really wanted the role but didn't get it. I don't see Priscilla Presley in that role at all. Michelle Pfeiffer would have been interesting, but yeah, I think Sean Young was good in the role. Yeah, and I don't think really Michelle Pfeiffer had really done much at that point, if I'm not mistaken. In 87, she was kind of, she had done Scarface. That's um, true. So that would, that would have been kind of her breakout role at that point. Yeah, she, yeah, she kind of became bigger later in the 80s. Batman Returns, of course. Tequila 92. Sunrise, the Fabulous Baker Boys. I think she really like the early 90s was really where she kind of peaked and my first memory of her is batman forever i mean oh yeah, yeah. come on like it, it's just catwoman she's oh mm -hmm. goodness when you're when you're five years well i wasn't five when i watched it i was probably a little older than <laughs> that when i watched it but right yeah, she was hot stuff back in the day now, say five. You, i think i would have been seven when it came out 1992 right, so yeah right but now if you if you listen to our Batman episode that me and Laramie and Ron did uh, last year, I think it was last year, two years ago, uh, Sean Young was originally cast in the in Batman 89 and had to be recast by Kim Basinger because she fell off a horse during a testing scene. But she wanted but then she wanted to come back and play like she was up for the running to play Catwoman in uh, Batman Returns. And even went on Oprah dressed in the Catwoman outfit to try to get the producers to cast her. And they were like, no, we've already cast Michelle Pfeiffer. You can't have the role. So, uh, Can I fall off a horse? Yes, I right. can. And yes, I have. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this was the story that Sam Donaldson said about her audition. He said she arrived at a casting session in New York City and promptly told us she hadn't memorized any of the dialogue. He said she had a lot of attitude. She instead pointed out that she had written a page from the character's diary and offered to read that. He said it was a salacious, it was just salacious gossip that she had written down and it immediately piqued my interest. He asked her back the next day with some proper dialogue prepared. So I guess she kind of got into the character without reading the dialogue and said, this is the kind of character I want it to be. And that intrigued him with, uh, with that. She's an interesting character for sure. Yeah. And, and I, you can kind of see where, someone like that that character would feel like she's important because mm -hmm. she's um in a relationship with a a senator and right and, and kind of kind of be manipulated and, mm -hmm. into thinking that you know she's gonna be she, she, like he's gonna leave her his his wife or some one of these days mm -hmm. um and then when this other guy arrives, you can kind of see where she's like, okay, now I'm actually in love with someone. And right. I, I, yeah. I, I kind of have some empathy for, for her and her character mm -hmm. in that film. So, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's funny because, you know, he made the comment like about this and he's like, he's my boss. He said, yeah, mine too. But I don't remember her ever saying what her job was or like where, how she worked for him. I don't know if I just missed that little piece of dialogue or if, it, if it's not clearly stated what she did for him. Probably an intern. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you never see her at work, so you don't know. But uh, <laughs> all right, so moving right along, we got Will Patton, which I forget that he's in this movie. Like when it when he came when it when he popped up on the screen, I was like, oh my gosh, Will Patton. And it's like, you are not playing uh Coach Bill Yost from Remember the Titans, which is you know, this is not a totally different character. I'll never look at him the same after watching right. this movie, man. Right. Oh, oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So he played Scott Pritchard, the general counsel to the senator. 
Patton portrayed the evil antagonist and desperately seeking Susan in 85 and had a significant role in No Way Out, which was his first major film. He went on to play the role of General Bethlehem against, uh, against opposite Kevin Costner in the 1997 movie The Postman. He, of course, we mentioned he played Coach Bill Yost. Remember the Titans from 2000 before a supporting actor performance in Armageddon in 1998. Patton also appeared in Gone in 60 Seconds in 2000, The Punisher 2004, and Minari 2020. Patton had a guest role in seasons three and four of Costner's Paramount Network series, Yellowstone. But yeah, him the, and... Yeah. yeah Patton the greatest and, show on television, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting when he's, he says he's not coming back. Uh, Costner says he's not coming back, so we'll see what happens. But different podcast, or different discussion mm-hmm. with different podcast. But yeah, Will Patton is is unforgettable he's one of those actors like you you instantly recognizable his voice his demeanor but but him and yeah him and costner obviously you know got along very well in making this movie because they've done other films together and i think i've read something where costner said he was one of his favorite actors to work with and would work with him on any project so good rapport there between the two of them but funny thing donaldson said he cast will Patton in new york city after attending a play in which uh, Will Patton was starring, the producers had given Donaldson front row seats to ensure he could watch Patton's performance closely, but he fell asleep. He said, I sort of came to, and there's Will, Will looking down at me, and I had no option but to give him the role. <laughs> I mean, I, that great. I get it. I mean, he's he's a very charismatic actor, man. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I think I kind of discovered him at a... At a, a a pretty good age. I was 15 when remember the Titans came out mm-hmm. and that same year gone in 60 seconds came out. Yep. Yep. And so like those two movies, like I I've always like, I watch those movies about every other year. Or so <laughs> like, and my, my wife, my wife loves gone in 60 seconds. It's one of mm-hmm. the few racing movies that she likes. Oh yeah. 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 Um, it's such a great cast. It's a fun movie. Oh, too. Gosh, it's so good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I I've always been kind of drawn to him and his roles and anything that he's in. I was like, uh, he's I know it sound the names sound the same, but <laughs> Will Patton and Bill Paxton when they're in the, when they're in the movie, <laughs> they always steal the whole that like mm-hmm. they steal every scene that they're in. Man. Oh yeah, so yeah, good, good, good comparison. Yeah, Bill Paxton and him for sure. Yeah. Once again, instantly recognizable playing multi, playing totally different characters. Like you like you said, even you know. His role in Gone in 60 Seconds, his role in Remember the Titans is very different from this. So very diverse actor. And same with Bill Paxton could play another good every every man kind of role when he wanted to play that role. But he could play some, you know, funny guys, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, rumor mill on this one. So here are the actors that were rumored to be in consideration for the role of Scott Pritchard. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, Gary Oldman. Stephen Lang, Alec Baldwin, Michael Bean, James Spader, Brian Brown, and John Hurd. I could see Dreyfus, maybe. Gary Oldman, I could see. Baldwin, maybe. Spader would be too easy to, you know, he always played like a pain-in-the-butt character. I don't know if he could pull <laughs> it off or not. I feel like Dreyfus might have been too old, though. Yeah, true, true. So, yeah, the two of them were supposed to be you know, they went to in the academy together, so they've mm-hmm. got to be the same age. Yeah, so definitely Richard Dreyfus couldn't couldn't play the same age as Kevin Costner for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, some of those probably couldn't. Maybe Alec Baldwin, Michael Bean, Spader might have been too young. 
Yeah. Once again, somebody just type in names of actors from 87. <laughs> yeah. All right, got a few more here. I'm not going to mention everybody, but these are ones that I wanted to mention. So a name that I didn't recognize, but a face that I did, George Zunza as Dr. Sam Hesselman, the uh, one in the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He appeared in several films, including The Deer Hunter, White Hunter, Black Heart, The Butcher's Wife, Basic Instinct, Crimson Tide, which is probably why I remember the most from, Dangerous Minds, and City by the Sea. But I, yeah, I recognized him immediately. And he's been in a bunch of movies as well, but uh, there wasn't a whole lot in his bio about his history. Uh, but I love the bumper sticker on the back of his wheelchair. Did you see it? What it says mm -mm. on the back of his wheelchair says, of course, I'm drunk. I'm no stunt driver. That's right. I saw that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I saw that on IMDb. That yeah. What had said that. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember him from. Uh the deer hunter which I, it's been a while since i watched yeah that. I, so. I, I haven't watched that one yet it's on my list of ones to watch so i started watching it a couple of years ago and it was i i, I couldn't i didn't get i think i got too distracted i was like i need to be able to sit down and really watch this and not be distracted when it was on so another name i didn't recognize but definitely an actor uh i've seen a lot jason bernard as major donovan uh, his first starring role was in the pilot episode of the television series The White Shadow as Jim Willis. His other well-known television roles were in Cagney and Lacey as Inspector Marquette from 82 to 83. He had a recurring role in the first season of Night Court as Judge Stone's arrogant rival Judge Willard. His first role in a future film was a cameo in Charles Bronson's film Death Wish, and his first major role was in the 1974 movie Thomasine and Bushrod. He later appeared in Car Wash, War Games, While You Were Sleeping, and Blue Thunder. His final appearance was in the 1997 film Liar Liar as Judge Marshall Stevens, which is probably one of you know one of the roles that I most remember him from. Another uh, Jim Carrey. We turned to a Jim Carrey uh, episode. We've had Ace Ventura <laughs> and Liar Liar mentioned already. That's but my yeah. all-time favorite Jim Carrey movie too. Like Which I, one, Liar Liar. Liar Liar. I watch it mm -hmm. about every year. It's, uh, it's <laughs> so good, so funny. Love it. Oh yeah, he's one of those kind of everyday, every man type of character, but always good in his roles. He was good in this too. Mm -hmm. I'll mention Iman as Nina Becca, Susan's friend. Of course, she was a, a Somali American model and actress. She was a muse for designers Giovanni Versace, Calvin Klein, Donna Karen. And she was married to rock musician David Bowie from 1992 until he died in 2016. But yeah, when she popped up on the movie, I was like, oh, she was a, like, I couldn't think of her name, but I remembered her being a model at that time. And it says she was a model and actress, but I really couldn't find anything else in her IMDb where she starred or, you know, acted in much other than this. And then another one that I see in a bunch of movies is Fred Dalton Tom Thompson as CIA director Marshall. Of course, he was American politician, attorney, lobbyist, columnist, actor, and radio personality. As an actor, he appeared in several movies and television shows, including Matlock, The Hunt for Red October, Die Hard 2, which I just watched uh, last month, and The Line of Fire, Days of Thunder, another favorite of mine, and Cape Fear. He frequently portrayed governmental authority figures and military men. I remember watching that with my wife, and I paused it when Fred Thompson was on the screen. I said, hey, <laughs> do you know who that is? And she's like, <laughs> I've, I think I've seen him and stuff. I was like, I know, but you've seen him in other things too. Have you <laughs> think, think about 2008. <laughs> it's just like, 
I don't know. It's like he ran for president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Against John McCain in the Republican mm-hmm. primary. I think he actually ran four years earlier than that too. Oh, okay. A couple times. Yeah, but I think uh, the furthest he went was 2008 because there was a big blurb about that, and they said that he had one of the highest approval ratings even when he backed out of the race for president. But all his time as a senator, he senator he always had a very good appro- approval rating. I love him in Days of Thunder. That's probably my favorite movie with him in it, though. That one and Die Hard too are two of my favorites with him. He's so good. The last thing I'll mention, I was I wasn't sure whether to put this in regular trivia or casting, but I figured to put it in casting. So when Donaldson visited DC to scout locations, he was met at the airport by a long stretch limo. He didn't like riding in limo. So he asked the driver if he could sit up front with him. Donaldson asked him if passengers ever got up to mischief in the back and the driver obliged with some stories. When it came time to shoot the limo scene, Donaldson tracked down the same driver and cast him as a limo driver. So I thought that was really cool that the limo driver in the movie was the limo driver that drove him around when he first went to DC. That was pretty, that is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Talk about favorite scenes, iconic scenes. Is there an iconic scene in this movie? I think probably the most iconic scene has got to be when, you know, they were fighting uh, the Senator and and Mm -hmm. Sean Young. And it's like, tell me who it is. And he slaps her and you see it in slow motion Mm -hmm. falling down. You're like, holy crap, what's <laughs> how's this gonna go down? Right, right. But I feel like my favorite scene's gotta be the uh what you were talking about, going to every room in the, the mm-hmm. Pentagon. That oh, yeah, that yeah. that was just freaking genius, man. Yeah. Watching that entire thing, that mm-hmm. that whole sequence there was just perfect psychological thriller mm-hmm. uh, um tone to it. So I don't know what 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 about you? Yeah, it's like I for iconic scenes, like there's a there's a lot of scenes that pop in my head. Like if, if somebody said No Way Out was the first scene I would think of, and it's like him running because like 20% of this movie is him being chased. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I was like, I feel like I'm watching mm-hmm. a Tom Cruise movie because he's just running. But <laughs> yeah, that scene, the death scene is definitely pretty, pretty big. But it, well, the cool thing about this movie, and somebody else mentioned it in something I was reading, and I had to agree, they're like, this is the type of movie they don't make anymore where it starts off really slow. Like there's, you're just kind of getting into the characters, but then once that, like once that murder happens, like everything speeds up, like the pacing gets quicker, the intensity it intensifies, so it builds to that climax at the end and the big twist, which we'll talk about. Um, no spoilers yet, but all the chase scenes and stuff when he uh, takes the car and, or when he's running through the, uh, the subway system and all that kind of stuff. So that I, I, I love those scenes. There's no like over the top type of action sequence. It's just the, what this movie does is it doesn't have these like monumental scenes per se, quote unquote, but the way the story unravels, you're just so sucked into it. You just, you have to watch and see what happens next. Like you're just, it, it draws you in and keeps you guessing or keeps you on the edge of your seat. Like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are they going to catch him? Like when they all come down in the computer room, like I said, when they're searching, he's like, what are you guys doing down here? It's like, well, there's only room we haven't searched yet. And then he spills the cup of coffee so he can sit on. It's like, I'm going to go change. And then so he, good. he, he leaves and then he gets in the, the vents and then he, you know, pops up in different places. Oh man. It's so good. Yeah, and then when those two assassins like corner him and he tackles both of them, like mm-hmm. it's just 
like desperation, man. Mm-hmm. Uh. And I love the like it's it's a subtle thing. I picked up on it today when I was watching the end when you know he's fighting the two guys. You know he knocks the one guy out with the fire extinguisher, and the other guy mm-hmm. cuts him. Which I thought, why are you carrying a blade? But the guy's carrying a blade, and he cuts his arm. And then they're having that big fight, him and uh, Pritchard and uh, Rice, when he figures out when everything kind of comes to a head in, in the senator's office. And then as he's walking out, the other guy's like, oh, my gosh, are you okay with your arm? And he looks down and is like, the adrenaline's been pumping so high, he's not even thinking about it. But, yeah, yeah. just that. that, And then you see the blood on the white uniform. It just is – it was a very, very well-made movie. Very the, – the details were there, I think, anyway. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean that when I saw that it was a you know political thriller, kind of mm-hmm. the erotic thriller type thing, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be like kind of your typical cheesy 80s type <laughs> of thriller that like maybe not so great watching it now. So I was kind of apprehensive when I, but I wanted to watch it. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy crap, man, this movie is really good. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's very, very well made. Mm-hmm. Like the, the attention to the detail, the direction, the, yeah. the, the score that's pumping throughout this time. Oh yeah. Time. Oh yeah. And like it's just, yeah. Every, everything is just so very, yeah. very well made. Like it has its dated moments. You know, the, the, uh, the graphics are very dated, you know the opening opening titles yeah. look pretty pretty bad and then uh you know let's talk about the technology of course we have the the uh, photo mm-hmm. uh, that that tried the the negative that he they found in her apartment and then these are called pixels or however he says pixels sounded so funny pixels, yeah. yeah and i was like oh my gosh like this this shows you how old it is like yeah mm-hmm. there are these things and we can we can make them clearer and of course that mm-hmm didn't really exist especially back then there's no way they could take that and make it you know be a full picture at the end like they did but i do remember as a kid thinking that was so cool like oh my gosh they can take something you can't see but it all adds to the story because like oh it's going to take like you know 24 to 48 hours for it to happen so you're you're giving that that clock that time it's like we have this has to be solved in so much time and then uh you know him him finding the jewelry box and knowing that the senator had given it to her as a gift. So that's how he was going to tie him in to being the culprit. You know, it's real smart. Like it, like I said, the, the beginning is kind of that light and fluffy. Oh, it's so, you know, they're romantic and they fall in love. Blah, blah, blah. And then boom, once she's, once she's murdered, it, it, it all starts to, to build and build and build. So really well done. It's one that I don't think people will mention a lot. When you talk about Kevin Costner, he's had so such more iconic roles, untouchables, bull Durham, Field of Dreams, we've all said from the 80s, but this one came out the same year as The Untouchables. And I think maybe because they came out so close together, Untouchables kind of overshadowed this one a little bit, but it's still really good. And it did well, it did pretty decent in the, at the box office. It wasn't as big of a hit, but it still did pretty well. And now these messages. Hey there, fellow 80s movie aficionados. Are you ready to embark on a nostalgia-filled journey to the greatest era of cinema? Then look no further than the Retro Life For You 80s Movie Podcast. Join us every week as we rewind the VHS tapes, dust off those Betamax classics, and dive headfirst into the neon-soaked, totally tubular world of the 1980s movies. From the Brat Pack to action heroes, we've got it all covered. 
Breakfast Club, Ghostbusters, E.T. and Indiana Jones, and more. It's like a trip in Doc Brown's time machine, but without the DeLorean. So whether you're a diehard 80s film buff or just curious about the cinematic gems of the past, Retro Life for You is your ticket to the ultimate movie time warp. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Retro Life for You. And we can be found anywhere you listen to your podcast, as well as on our website, www.retrolife, the number four, the letter U.com. Are you a fan of movies and TV shows inspired by comics? Ready for a podcast that dives deep into the thrilling world of adaptations? Well, look no further. Welcome to Moving Panels, the podcast where we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. This is your go-to podcast for all things comics on screen. I'm your host, Laramie Wells, and every Monday we explore the dynamic universe where ink meets action. We break down the classics, reveal hidden gems, and uncover the creative process behind your favorite adaptations. Subscribe to Moving Panels now on your favorite podcast platform and join us on this epic journey through the pages of comics and onto the big screen. Remember, new episodes drop every Monday. Don't miss out. Moving Panels, where every panel has a story and every adaptation is a blockbuster. Subscribe today, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. All right, well, let's hit some scenes and trivia. We'll be thinking of some other scenes as well. In the scene where Tom and Susan exit the elevator after their ride in the limo, since we were talking about limo a few minutes ago, uh, the director said it took a few takes to get the scene right. He said every time the elevator doors opened, Kevin Costner didn't look too happy. <laughs> Finally, the director took Sean Young aside and told her, do something to put a smile on Kevin's face while they're in the elevator. The next take made it in the movie. After seeing it, Donald said, I don't know what she did in there, but he sure had a smile on his face when the doors opened. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think she had made the comment, too, that she was fine for the, with the nude scenes, but she knew that Kevin Costner was uncomfortable with her being nude. So that might have yeah. been why that, that scene, he well, just he knew what was coming and was like, uh, I feel a little anxious. So, yeah. And, of course, yeah, I was going to mention this when you mentioned you know, Susan falling to her death. This was filmed with her standing upright on a dolly being pushed towards a wall that had been made up to look like the floor complete with the glass table. So that's oh. how they did that shot, which I thought was even watching it when she does a fall. I was like, how did, you know, you could tell it's not CGI, like, but that was a very realistic looking shot. I was like, that's smart. You just make a wall that looks like the floor and just move her towards it on the dolly. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Good effect. Practical effects. Exactly, I was gonna say great yeah. practical. That's what that's why we love the 80s movies, the practical effects. Kevin Costner did roll over the hood of a moving car during one of the chase sequences. According to the mm -hmm. film's original press material, an ex insurance executive approached director Donaldson after the stunt and said, Don't you ever, ever, ever do that again. He also drove without wearing his prescription glasses, which which the film insurance company was not happy about either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently he did all of his stunts in this movie, or at least a yeah, lot of them. A lot of them. The yeah. one I could tell was a stunt man was during the chase scene where he jumps over the fence and climbs on the tree. I think like mm -hmm. that scene, you could tell it was a stunt double. Like it, the hair wasn't right. They, the guy's hair was like four inches longer than Kevin Costner's hair. In that scene. <laughs> and he kept turning uh, his head like away from the camera. It's like, you know, but 
Yeah. That's the stuff we love to we love to catch. One another thing about dating the movie, which I thought was was interesting, was when Sam tells Tom that obtaining the credit card records could take a few days. In 1987, most credit card transactions were performed on paper. The embossed details on the credit card were transferred to a carbon paper receipt, which were then submitted to the vendor's bank for tabulation, either manually or using basic OCR scanners. The processing of these charges could take up to a week. So this is the pre-digital age. Do you, do you, are you old enough to know, remember the sliding credit card machines? I just remember them from uh, Home Alone 2. He <laughs> <laughs> was at the Plaza Hotel. And mm -hmm. like, wow, it worked. Right. The, yeah. I was probably too young to ever even notice how my parents were paying for things. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's so funny now. We just, we have a debit card. We just, it's just, it's so quick now. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But also, you watch, you know, go back, let's think, thing, go back and watch a movie like um, Catch Me If You Can with Tom Hanks and Cap DiCaprio, how. They manipulated the check system even mm -hmm. back then, you know, so. Yeah. So the ending of the film was apparently controversial at the time as audiences are on the side of Costner's character throughout only to be stung by the final revelation. Spoiler alert. He was the Russian they were looking for. <laughs> he was. <laughs> so, uh, but Donaldson said he was very happy that people kept the secret and wondered if that aided the word of mouth and the film success, which I, you know, if that movie was made today, you know, the twist ending would everybody, everybody know everybody would probably know by the second week. So uh, probably why people not really talking about it helped it stay in the theaters a little bit longer. Yeah. But I remember as a kid watching that, I'm like, wait, so he really was. So he was, uh -huh. he was Russian like, oh man. So that, and that, I think that's one of the first movies. I'm probably sure that was the first movie that I saw that had a, what you would call a twist ending, quote unquote. Which was really good because it's like, is it adds a layer to the story? Like, not only is he trying to prove that the senator did it and to prove that he's innocent, but he's also trying to make sure they don't know that he's a Russian spy either. <laughs> yeah. So, I'll tell you one thing um, that that makes this movie so unique to me. Mm -hmm. and I was I was watching some of the scenes on YouTube. I think it has like twelve different scenes, and I watched one of them, and and it just that that final scene. Mm -hmm. No, not 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 the final scene, but the right after, right after the death, the the senator goes to Will Patton. I guess this is his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. I assume. I assume, yeah. And he's fully prepared to turn himself in for this. Like, right. I right. did it. I'm going mm -hmm. to the police. I just want to let you know first. Mm -hmm. But it's the chief of staff who convinces him to bury mm -hmm. it. Yep. And so that's why I feel like it's so unique, is because there are a lot of movies that show the corruption of Washington mm -hmm. and, and how dirty the politicians are. But, you know, one could argue that most politicians are just kind of caught up in the pressure and demands mm -hmm. of the job. And they just become yes men mm -hmm. to all the guys that are behind <laughs> the scenes, the bureaucrats, right. the lobbyists, the staff members, mm -hmm. um, all the ones who are sucking on the power heat right <laughs> <laughs> um those people are where the real corruption lies mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and very few movies show that side of it right <laughs> so, right right uh, i think it's really i thought that was a really cool touch on this mm -hmm. film to see that it it wasn't the, the yeah. senator that that yeah. wanted to bury this like so 
that's true because like even re-watching it like i think at one point i was like you know what i don't think i remembered the senator being as uncooperative not uncooperative but like he's like this isn't gonna work we i just need to confess he's like no 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 you're like you realize that the senator really like gene hagman really did not play the bad guy was he a great was he a good guy well not necessarily but he was not the real enemy the enemy was pritchard because mm -hmm. he was the one that was like no we're gonna cover it up it's gonna you know we're gonna kill two birds with one stone the thing that does kind of bother me about the ending, it, it I, don't, I don't like the, the ending bothered me some because you find out he's the Russian agent. You know, he's telling whoever his, you know, handler is or whatever, you know, it's like, you told me to have a relationship with the woman. So obviously that she was the target for him, which was like, was he to get close to her, to get close to the senator? Like what, you know, we don't know what the end, what that end goal was. And then he's like, well, I'm leaving because. Once the picture was developed and they knew, wait, even though Pritchard killed himself and you think he's the Russian mole, we've still got this picture of the lieutenant. So it still leaves like this big question in Washington, like, well, then what what do they what happens after that point? And so I thought it was interesting that the, you know, they let him go and the the Russian guy says, No, let him go. He'll be back. Where else where else can he go? And it's like, okay, are they setting up, you know, we're so are they setting up for a sequel? What's part two gonna be about? You know, like does yeah. he come back and they they put him somewhere else in our different identity or whatever? I don't know, just you know, that way that way. But that I think the ending, even though it was cool, you know, with the being the twist, the very, very end where he just walks out to the car, it's like, okay, it's kind of a cheap ending. <laughs> you, just, you, don't, you don't answer all the questions. Like, yeah. okay, we, we ran out of money. Here you go. This is this is we're gonna stop the movie right here. Well, that just means it was ahead of its time because that's yeah. how half the endings are now. And <laughs> most movies, yeah. it's like they leave you with something that doesn't that doesn't sum up anything at right. all. And I'm like, right. um, what, what did I just watch? Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, I don't want to see four more versions of this. I was good with just one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh. All right. Well, let's talk about box office and critical reception and wrap this one up. So No Way Out was released in American theaters on August 14th. 1987, it debuted at number two at the U.S. box office behind Stakeout with $4.3 million. I'm going to have to cover Stakeout here pre pretty soon because it keeps coming up as one that beat <laughs> that beat out all these other movies. Uh -huh. I've seen Stakeout before. I remember watching it. I think I watched the TV version. I think I watched the TV version as a kid. So it's one I want to go back and watch. Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez. Uh, I remember liking it, but I haven't seen it in a long time. But it's not streaming anywhere, so I think I have it on like my watch list of when it's available for streaming uh, to, to catch it. All right, so Rotten Tomatoes gives No Way Out a 92% on the tomato meter and a 72% audience score. IMDb has it 7.1 out of 10 with viewers and a 77 on Metacritic. You know, obviously loved by the critics for Rotten Tomatoes. 92 is pretty high. 72 mm -hmm. audience score is not bad because I'm sure most of those are people that didn't see it in 87. They're people that have watched it more recently. And because it, it is somewhat dated, they may not understand some parts of the, of the story. Uh, but where does it fall for you? Where, where, where do you rank No Way Out? Uh, I gave it a four out of five. Um it's one that I could probably rewatch a few oh, times yeah. And, yeah. And, and could probably get higher. Uh, my initial reaction though, it's, it's definitely a, I guess that would make it what a 80, 80% or so. Yeah. Um, 80s or 90s. Yeah. It's been, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where it is for me. Like it, it, 
it's one that I've seen many times, but it's still fun to watch. Even if you know how it ends, it it still keeps you engaged in the story. Even it, it, that's one of the great great movies are like that. Even if you know how it's going to end, you still want to you want to enjoy the ride again, knowing how it's going to end. So mm-hmm. um, it's definitely it definitely has that feel. And I think that I think you chalked that up to Kevin Costner, his performance, Gene Hackman, Sean Young. Will Patton. Yeah, just the actors and the direction is, is really well, is done really well. So I think that's what makes it rewatchable. So because it's rewatchable, that's kind of how I rank my stuff. So it definitely would be in that, I say upper 80s, maybe like 80, 86, 87. Kind of like it would be four out of five stars if I was doing the stars as well. So that Will Patton, man, that his, his performance in that is just, I told you that I'm never going to see him the same way again because <laughs> right. he's so freaking creepy in this movie mm-hmm. and it builds you know because when yeah. you first meet him he doesn't seem that way at all but the deeper it gets into it like the more unhinged he becomes which once again it shows good acting and good directing that they let that kind of slowly develop it wasn't like oh you he's like first meeting you're like oh he's crazy you know he's gonna be the bad guy like you didn't know that coming in when you meet him at the dinner it's like they see what they're cool guys and they know each other. And he's just, he makes a line about like, I would do anything for that man. I've laid in my life for him. It's like, okay, that's a little, a little extreme, but you're not, it's not so in your face. He didn't say it with, you know, a certain look that made you think, you know, I'm crazy. It's just a little thing that's planted there to kind of, you know, foreshadow what's to come. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. There's that, like you can kind of see how they're like starting to spin this web and like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the very subtle things like he's a genius. Like, well, most people mm-hmm. don't say that about their boss first. Of right. All. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then secondly, when he says I, I would lay down that life for my, my life for that man, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, there's something going on here, but yeah, you don't, you kind of brush it <laughs> off. Yeah. Right. Right. Weird. Yeah. All right. Well, JB, well, thanks so much for being a part of this episode. You also have a podcast called man up. Of course, our listeners know about it, but you got anything in the works coming up? I know you've kind of taken a little bit of a hiatus here recently, but anything you want to let people know about or any past episodes they can go and check out until you get something new out? As far as past episodes, you can definitely check out. Um, you know, we, we, I've talked about a couple of them. I've done, I've done Remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. Unforgiven. Unforgiven, yes. Um, Expendables, I did the Expendables mm-hmm. 1 through 3. That's my most recent episode that I dropped, and I dropped it right before uh four came, out. four came out which i've right. heard was terrible and i still haven't watched i haven't it. watched it either <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid to now yeah no yeah um, most recent ones i did alpha dog which is a mm-hmm. kind of a low-key movie that a lot, yeah, not a lot i've of seen that seen. uh i did independence day last year mm-hmm. um and i did a father's day special which dude um check that out because i did uh top 10 movie dads and tv dads oh cool me and me and uh, another uh, another critic uh did that so um, I've got a lot, you know, from from comic book movies to westerns. Uh, you know, Tim and I did Tombstone, and that's mm-hmm. kind of one of my one of my first episodes, which is a great one. Uh, as far as coming up, I, I still have a couple that I haven't released yet. I did uh, Friday Night Lights recently. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, actually, I did that right before football season. I just haven't <laughs> released it yet because I got really busy. Right. Um, and then I also have I've got one on Walking Tall that has not been released. Is that the original or the remake? The the rock. The, okay. The, the, the remake. Dwayne Johnson had yeah, the remake. Yeah. And then also got 
one on uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Oh, that's a good that one. Will be released someday soon. But yeah, I'm hoping to get that started back up soon and and get get that going because it's been a long time coming, and I, I'm I'm finally to the point to where I can start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad uh, you took time out of your schedule to, to join in with me on this one. Always a good time to have you on the podcast. So a new feature we have this year, I'm doing an 80s flick flashback feedback. So I'm going to share one of the reviews we've gotten on Apple Podcast. So the math actor gave us five stars and said it was entertaining and informative. His review says, as a child of the 80s, this is a terrific podcast for reliving these movie classics. Tim and his guests always provide terrific insight while having a lighthearted discussion. Tim does terrific, terrific research to provide background information and trivia about the film. A nostalgic trip through 80s cinema. So appreciate you, Math Actor, for that awesome review. If you want to leave a review as well, we'd really appreciate it by doing that over on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. So do you have a burning question for us or just want to share your own epic 80s movie experience? You can give us a, send us an email at info at if you're enjoying our show, please share the love. Spread the word by sharing this episode with your fellow fans of 80s flicks. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok for more nostalgic fun. Where can they find you, JB, if they want to reach out to you and the Man Up podcast? Uh, yeah, search Mainly Movies on your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, you know, I'm on, I'm on all, the, all of them. And then if you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at Manly Movies one also on Facebook at Manly Movies and uh, Instagram as well. I don't get on there as much. So if you want to hit me up, try, try me on Twitter for the most part. <laughs> and I just realized, I think I've been calling your podcast Man Up Podcast instead of Manly Movies. And I knew that. I don't know why I was doing that's, that. Well, I mean, that's my catchphrase. Yeah. I mean, that's what, yeah, that's what that's, I'll say at the very end of every that, episode. Yeah, that's, that's, what, well, that's what I remember from the from the ad that we that you gave us. So you remember to man up. So that's why it sticks <laughs> in my head. All right, man. Well, thanks, JB, for joining. Thank everybody for listening. This is Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. It's over. Go home. Go.